Hello, cyber friends. This is Chatting Cyber, and I'm your host, Mark Shine. This podcast focuses on how companies can help qualify and quantify the cost of a data breach. Chatting Cyber features some of the most well-respected privacy and cyber experts in the world. Join the conversation with business leaders, government agencies, and cyber experts to learn more about how and why they got into this ever-changing field that we call cyber risk. Hello, everybody. I'm Mark Shine, National Co-Chair of the Cyber Center of Excellence here at Marshall McLennan Agency. And today I have a very special guest, Vince Stewart. Vince, thanks for joining today. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. I like when I get invited out these days. <laughs> well, we, we like having you on the show, Vince. Um, and we appreciate your time. It sounds like based off of your resume that uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure when you find time to sleep. Um, now currently at Ankara as the Chief Innovation and Business Intelligence Officer. But prior to that, you really had a vast experience in Washington. But before we get into your experience in Washington, my question, Vince, is how did an individual who grew up or was born in Jamaica, grew up in Chicago, end up being the Deputy Commander of the United States Cyber Command? Yeah, you know, uh, oftentimes I get, uh, the, the original greeting, uh, how are you doing? And I'll respond with living the dream. And uh, it is really the American dream. Uh, you know, my sister and I joined my mom in uh, the United States in 1971. I don't remember uh, luggage. I remember that we had what we had on uh, our backs. We had the vision of America, the things that are possible in America, the hope the opportunity uh, work gets you there. And so um, we started with nothing, no title, no special privileges, no, uh, you know, uh, just your very basic land in America and do something. And so uh, we went to Chicago in November of 1971. So talk about a culture shock of going from a tropical island uh, to Chicago in uh, late fall, early winter, um, and, and you know, outfitting yourself for that. My mom was determined that we were going to do a couple of things. We were going to be committed to our work, and we were going to get an education. And if we did those things, that the opportunities would come. So uh, I, I, I learned how to play American football, something I was unfamiliar with. And then was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to Western Illinois University in the heart, mid uh, west central part of uh, Illinois. Now, Western Illinois, and this is kind of interesting, uh, I've been a leatherneck, uh, a Marine leatherneck for my entire adult career uh, in the military. But Western Illinois is also the home of the fighting leathernecks. And in fact, I uh, was able to petition uh, uh, the Department of the Navy to use the Leathernecks and its mascot and its association with the Marine Corps as part of the university construct. So I had uh, my university time as a Leatherneck and then I came on active duty and became a Leatherneck. Uh, during the time I was at uh, Western Illinois, uh, I was recruited fairly heavily by uh, the Army ROTC program, Reserve Officer Training Corps. Uh, to join the army, uh, but I wanted, I, I, I made a determination I was going to serve, uh, just give something back to the country that had given me an opportunity, give me an education, et cetera. I mean, I was going to, uh, uh, going, going to university on a full scholarship. Um, so I, uh, 
I went to the Army ROTC uh, camp at Fort Knox, Kentucky uh, for six weeks, came home for two weeks, and then went to the Marines uh, platoon leaders course and decided to join the Marine Corps with the intent of doing three or four years and then getting out and you know doing something else. 38 years later, uh, I finally retired last April. And along the way, uh, I often tell folks now, I folks ask me about the ribbons and medals that I wear. And I tell them now that I wear the ribbons, but uh, the Marines who worked for me and with me earned those ribbons and medals. I was fortunate enough not to be surrounded by really quality, capable, competent individuals. And they, uh, they ensured my success. I got more credit for the success than I deserved and uh, culminating as uh, the deputy at uh, US Cyber. Okay, so that was a long answer. I know you prefer shorter answers, but that kind of puts it in context how I got it. It's, it, it's, it's a phenomenal story. And most importantly, thank you for your service. So it sounds like, you know, or, or let me take one step back. When we think about your career and, and all that you've done, was there one particular moment that you felt was really a, a pivotal point that helped put you on the trajectory to, to become who you are today? No, you know, I, I, I don't know if there was one point. It was just like a slow movement. And I think what happened in the Marine Corps was that uh, I was given some uh, challenging assignments. I did well enough in those challenging assignments. Uh, the Marine Corps then rewarded me by giving me another great opportunity to be challenged. And with each successive challenge, I woke up one day and thought, holy cow, I've gone over 20 years. So uh, one of the things I really enjoy about the military is that if you're still performing, you'll get opportunities to go to school. So interspersed with some of these challenges were the opportunities to go out to school for uh, a number of months where I could think and write uh, and, and really just focus on myself and my family for uh, eight months or so. And then you get another assignment and it is a great assignment and you manage to be successful there and you get another school and another opportunity. So it was a slow melt up uh, to use that, that phrase. I, I can't think of a pivotal moment except uh, maybe the one time when I, uh, well, there are two occasions actually now that I think about it. Uh, about the 10 year mark, I went into my battalion commander and said, uh, I'm thinking about retiring, uh, resigning my commission. And he said, you've already done 10 of 20. So you may as well just do another 10. And at least at the 20 year mark, you're going to get uh, a retirement pension. And uh, I said, okay. And, and, and another good assignment came along uh, subsequent to that. As a Colonel, I got uh, really frustrated with the system and uh, attempted to resign. And my boss, one of my mentors, uh, General Walt Gaskin, uh, refused to sign my uh, letter. Uh, and about uh, less than a year later, I was selected for Brigadier General. So had he signed uh, that letter uh, uh, proving my request to resign, um, I, I don't know what I would be doing. I certainly would not have gotten both DIA and Cyber Command. Sure. So, so pivoting gears, um, thinking about, you know, your role now currently at, at Ankara, are some of the trends that you're seeing now that you're in the, um, the private sector, the same as you were seeing in the public sector or where, where are the, the similarities and the contrast from, from your experience? Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out this private sector. It's a, it's a different, uh, different beast. Um, 
different challenges, uh, not in, in terms of um, understanding the threat, uh, the risk in cyberspace. Uh, so so let, me, let me put it this way, for a huge portion of my career, I've got to ex, uh, execute a budget. Someone said, here's X billion, here's X billion, uh, go spend that money for the things that you think are important for the organization. Now I'm learning things like return on investment and margins, and I don't <laughs> get a budget unless I make a budget. So, you know, I, I can't just go, I need, I need 10 more people. It's going to cost me $10 million. It's going to be, a, how much revenue did you generate that will facilitate hiring 10 more people? So thinking about margins and, you know, I, I want the t-shirt uh, built for a buck 98 so I can sell it for $30 and I've got good margin. That is something very unique, uh, different than I have had to think about certainly over the last 10 years. And, uh, the other thing that, uh, and I have to be very careful uh, how I say this, is I am struck by how um, litigious the private sector is. There's almost a constant, let's see if someone's going to sue us and how do we protect ourselves or see how we can go after someone. I really didn't expect that, but I see that, I've seen that over the last 18 months and very litigious environment and talking to consulting firms that have uh, lots of lawyers, that's tough to say, but, uh, and I don't think it's, uh, I think this is pervasive across the, uh, the U.S. landscape. I don't think that's the case in Europe at all. So, so I'll stop there because I'm digging a hole at this point. No, no, I, I, I think you're giving great advice. Um, thinking about kind of the, the private-public uh, collaboration are you a supporter of organizations collaborating with uh, government agencies, whether it's pre-breach or post-breach? In, in so many ways. If we leave, uh, the threat is real. We all understand the threat is real. We can talk about nation states and their capabilities, but we also have criminals who are going after networks. It, uh, if, if we're doing this as individual points of defense, we're all going to fail. Uh, because someone's going to find that weakest link and that weakest link will move laterally and it will impact us all. If we're thinking about collective defense, where you have good public-private partnership, that you can share insights, that you can share intelligence up front, that you can share uh, solutions, you've got a much better chance. I don't want mom and pop uh, taking on a nation-state cyber capability. They're going to get their butts kicked. I, if mom and pop is going to get exposed, I want mom and pop to feel confident that they're going to be able to talk to DHS. They're going to get some advice from DHS uh, and help them to win the fight. Uh, so I'm a huge component, uh, a proponent uh, for uh, this public-private partnership. But there's also another uh, piece. We can learn each other from the exchanges of personnel. Because uh, as I, I said earlier, there's certainly some differences in the way uh, how we deal with the threat on the private sector than how we deal with it in, in, in government. So the more we can exchange people so we can get insights into how they think, how they might react, how they might best be served, there's great value there. And there's a great opportunity to build trust because a huge part of me helping someone at the local tactical level is do they trust me to, be, to take care of their data do they trust me to have uh, uh, their have their quote back? 
And if you're not having that uh, routine interaction, you can't build trust. And trust is huge in, uh, in winning a, a collaborative space. Sure. Vince, so, so oftentimes I'm speaking to an organization, you know, 200 employees, $100 million. They're saying, Mark, why am I a target, right? Why would somebody want to target me? Should an organization in that middle market space, should they be more worried about the nation state attacks, the, um, the individuals here perhaps uh, domestically or their own employees? Uh, yes, a uh, couple of things. One is uh, that size company, if breached, about 60% of them never uh, recover. So, and, and the number uh, varies uh, over time, but about 60% of a company that size, once breached, whether from reputation, whether from resources lost, uh, will not recover from a breach in their system. So, uh, it, uh, yeah, uh, there's an old Russian uh, uh, saying that, or at least, uh, uh, you may not be interested in Russia, but Russia is interested in you. And so uh, some of these small companies may not be at all interested in a nation state or a, a criminal, but they, that's where the data, that's where the resources are. $100 million is a lot of money. And if I just harken back to Baltimore a little bit, Baltimore had a ransomware incident where they were asked for X amount in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Uh, they decided not to pay that. Now, uh, Baltimore is a big city. It's, it's the last time I looked, it was over $20 million to mitigate uh, that, that, that ransomware effort. So, um, yeah, you may, you may think you're not a great target because no one's interested in my small company or no one's interested in me as an individual. But if I can get X amount in ransomware or extortionware from small individuals because I have access to their data, uh, as a criminal, you've got all kinds of criminals. You have the big end criminals who want hundreds of millions of dollars, and you have the small end criminals who just want $5,000. Um, so we're all part of this uh, attack surface. Uh, we all have data that we want to protect or believe should be protected. And the criminals or nation state is very interested in our data, uh, whether that data is used to extort, uh, get ransom, or to manipulate, uh, or just to be malicious. Uh, in terms of the insider, and again, the number varies, uh, about 70% of breaches as a result of insider uh, activity. Some of that insider activity is uh, malicious, not a whole lot. Some of it is just dumb things that we do. I've often said I could send out an email that's in the subject line that would say, don't click on this link. And about four or 5% of the people who get that email will click on the link. And of course, phishing is the way that we get in from the inside. Okay. So uh, you're gonna have a small percentage that's just gonna be really curious and click on the link and, and go there. And it doesn't even have to be a smart uh, 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 phishing effort. But we're getting smarter as criminals. We're doing socially engineered uh, 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 fishing. So if I know that you like to go fish in Montana, uh, not to use fishing in two different ways, uh, you, you want to go hunting in Montana and you like to do hunting in Montana in October, I can tailor a fishing ad that says, hey, Mark, uh, come see the beautiful pictures of uh, hunting and opportunities in 
and you click on the link and off you go. So uh, yeah, it's, uh, the, the data is what's important. Uh, we all have data that is valuable to us, whether it's in our personal lives or in our business uh, uh, interactions. And that data is at risk from nation states and from criminals. And uh, like, like I said, a good chunk of that starts from the inside. Sure. So Vince, I mean, thinking about your, your experience that you've had, what was one of the most challenging, um, we'll call it data incidents that you've experienced that you could, that you could share with us? Yeah, I, I can't share the really challenging one. <laughs> uh, 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 I'll give you an example of one that, uh, that impacted a number of folks, uh, business email accounts. So a, uh, a, a criminal gets access to your device and your business, uh, uh, whatever business you're in. And he spends, uh, this criminal spends weeks or months observing, doing detailed reconnaissance uh, to identify who are the key players, who are the key decision makers, when do they make certain decisions, and so now I've accessed your business email and now understand how your business operates. And one I saw was uh, an email that looked very much like the CEO sent the email to his workforce saying, move X amount of money to this account at this time. It matched his, uh, his uh, persona. It matched uh, the routines that they executed. And so the staff looked at the business email from the CEO and said, CEO says transfer X million dollars to this account at this time and click off they did. Now the business comes back and says, holy cow, we just lost X millions of dollars. Uh, can you recover that? Uh, and the answer is no. Uh, it's gone, especially if it's uh, cryptocurrency, it's even harder. Uh, and now there's regulation or at least some guidance that says if you help a criminal uh, setting up a crypto wallet, uh, you may be complicit and you may be prosecuted. So uh, uh, hijacking a business email and using that business email to replicate uh, actions that's routine uh, is probably one of the most common and one of the ones I've seen that uh, I can talk about. Sure, I appreciate it. Let me, let me ask, based off your past experience, how do you feel that helps impact your role now that you're the um, what is it, chief innovation and business intelligence officer at Ankara? Yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what that title means. Uh, you know, when, when we negotiated uh, my joining the company, I said, I really don't care what you call me, just uh, let, me, let me go to work. Uh, but, but again, you, you gotta have uh, a title and if it says chief, uh, I guess I'm supposed to have an office on the 12th floor, I, I don't know. Um, pr probably the, uh, the piece though that is most intriguing to me in that title is the innovation piece. Uh, what is, you know, if I ask 15 people what, uh, to define innovation, I'd probably get 15 different uh, answers. But how do you define for an organization what it means to be an innovative environment? And I add usually now innovative environment without fear, because a lot of times when people think about innovation, they think about change and change is personal to everybody in the organization. So if I'm innovative and I'm leaning on uh, front end and I'm, I'm replacing the horse and buggy with a, uh, a combustion engine, uh, the individual is immediately thinking, okay, how does that displace me? 
What does it mean for my position, the power that I've acquired, the parking spot, the office, et cetera, et cetera. So one, defining what is innovation so that we can all go, okay, we think we know what innovation is. And it's not just about getting technology. It might be the finding process. It might be, it might be something short of here's an app uh, that now makes us innovate. So defining innovation, thinking about how that fits into the culture, thinking about how you create that innovation environment. So uh, in many cases, people think about a laboratory where you can go and create stuff. How do you create a, uh, a secure uh, virtual environment where you can take your wicked problems, put it in that environment, have that environment be connected to a number of organizations, think tank, academia, the best industry. And now I bring Vince Stewart's wicked problem into this environment and folks go, hey, what are you talking about? This is easy. We already have a solution. Here it is. Or, oof, this really is a wicked problem. Let's put our heads against it and solve the problem. So, uh, so that's the most intriguing part for me. The, the business intelligence piece is, um, for instance, I get asked now uh, quite often, so what if there's this particular political outcome as a result of the uh, uh, November election? President Trump wins, uh, Vice President Biden wins, what's the composition of the, of the Congress? Uh, is it contested? What does that mean for my industry? What does it mean from a geopolitical risk and opportunity standpoint? Now that's the fun portion because you can make up scenarios and, and if you get it right three out of 10 times, it's pretty good. The, the others, it's just uh, generally folks forget it. But, but so you go into a, an organization, pick your organization uh, and they're interested in a geopolitical uh, risk and opportunities. They're concerned about what might happen at the election. They're concerned about the impact on their industry. And so we kind of walk our way through. Here's what we think, uh, here are the uh, possible scenarios. And again, that's, that's an awful lot of fun. So that brings, allows me to bring my defense intelligence uh, uh, effort and experience to that geopolitical piece. And then uh, on, the, uh, on the innovation piece, I've always been, I've always tried to be the guy on the, on the leading edge of an idea and, uh, and then being able to take that and make uh, the organizations better. So that's, that's just kind of part of the DNA, I guess. And I, I love your story. I, I really do. And everything that you've done for the United States and now that you're doing for the private sector, I, I very much thank you. But before I let you go, one word that means uh, is very special to me is perseverance. And I'd like to know what perseverance means to you because your story is just incredible. Um, I guess, I guess, I guess if I could boil it down, it's um, stick with it, regardless of, uh, of uh, the situation. Uh, oftentimes I'll tell folks, you, you, have, you have to be like a relief pitcher. You may get clubbed today and lose the game in the eighth inning, but you better be ready to go tomorrow. Do whatever it is to prepare yourself physically and mentally to persevere, to get with it, to be a champion, even because life's going to knock you down over and over again. If you have a good idea, a good vision of who you are and what you want to accomplish, you just got to stick with it throughout uh, any circumstance. Never lose sight of the vision. Never lose sight of the end game. I think sometimes we get distracted by the noise, and so we lose sight of the end game. And so if, if we really understand who we are and what we want to achieve, 
knowing that life's going to throw obstacles in our way, people are going to throw obstacles in our way, just stick with it regardless of the circumstances. That's, that's probably as good as I can do for perseverance. Vince, I, I really appreciate the time with us today. Thank you very much for coming on the show and chatting cyber. Yeah, easy to do, and thanks for giving me a platform. I love talking, as you can tell. <laughs> <laughs>